Apologies. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for Minnesota Public Radio, and I watch a lot of TV. I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and Your Classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture and creative writing blog called The Tangential. So the next season of Fargo isn't coming until next spring, 2017, but Noah Hawley is really busy with a lot of other stuff. He's on a book tour right now for his fifth novel, Before the Fall, which the New York Times called one of the best suspense books of the year. I completely agree. It's amazing. And we were able to catch up with him while he was signing books here in St. Paul and ask about season three. We don't know too much about season three so far. We know that it's set in the year 2010. We know, of course, it's located somewhere in Minnesota. And we got some big casting news recently when we learned that Ewan McGregor of Train Spotting and Moulin Rouge and Star Wars prequel fame is going to pay is going to play a pair of brothers, not twins, but brothers. We don't know much more than that so far, although we did learn a few more details in our conversation with Noah Hawley. Disclaimer, I got really excited for this conversation and I got my seasons a little mixed up, but stick with me here. So obviously we saw the news about season two and you and McGregor. Three, yeah. Season three. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. I'm like going back in time. Yes. Season three. Uh-huh. Um, what can you tell us about season three? He's taller than you think <laughs> when you meet him. Um, it always starts for some reason with a kind of catalytic moment. The first year was two guys in an emergency room and one of them is a very civilized man and the other's anything but and then you think well who are who are are these men and how did they get here and what's going to happen when they met and then the second year was a woman drives home with a guy sticking out of her windshield and makes dinner for her husband and then you're like well that's interesting who's the guy in the windshield and, and so the third year um revolves around these two brothers. Um, the older one is, is a very successful, the parking lot king of Minnesota, and the and, uh, younger one, less successful, is a parole officer. And, and you know, he's, he had, there's sort of an original sin between them that, that kind of blows up at the start of the story and, and sort of sends things on their way. But, you know, the show always needs to have, because it's, a true story that isn't true, right? It has to have this sense of truthiness, right? Which sort of comes from having enough moving pieces that on a collision course where exactly how they're going to collide, there's a certain element of randomness to it. So this this season will revolve around the two Ewans, but but it'll very quickly escalate it to, to a lot of other things, so... So people from Minnesota are always curious about how you choose the locations within Minnesota. Oh, right. Where the show is featured. Laverne, <laughs> Does it seem Duluth? random? A little bit. How do you choose those locations? Well, it was very funny because, um, you know, like Sioux Falls and, and um, where, where, where were we this last Laverne. year? In Laverne. Yeah, it's like a 45-minute drive. So when Ed and Peggy take off for Sioux Falls, it's like they could be there in <laughs> half an hour if they sped. So... The road trip is not a really very far road trip. So sometimes we go, well, most people won't know that necessarily. Um, but, um, you know, I think sometimes it has to do with size of the of the place um, and wanting to go smaller than, than uh, Bemidji in the second year and feeling that um, 
you know, Laverne had been featured in, in the documentary, the, the War, so that gave me a lot of opportunity to see the sort of historical perspective on, on it, um, which was helpful. And uh, yeah, it was close to the Dakotas, and that was, you know, I thought, I thought was interesting as well. You know, the first year with Bemidji and then Duluth, I guess it was just a sense of, you know, for Duluth wanting to have something that felt, you know, a little bit urban, like trying to mix the two things between something that was smaller and something that felt bigger or more of a police force, I guess. But um, I'd like to say that there was a science to it, um, but it's more of just an instinctual kind of process. So have you been to Laverne? I have not been to Laverne. No, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, the line that I use, and, and, and you can feel free to bust me on it, is that my, the job that I've been given is, is not to um, recreate Minnesota as it exists, but to cre- recreate it as it existed in that movie, which I always saw as a very respectful portrait, you know, with a certain comic aspect to it. And, you know, so, so to that end, no, I, I mean, it's not, I don't do it intensive writer's workshops up here and, and, and everything. I wish we could shoot here. That that would make me happy. Um, but we... It's America, so we have to make our television in Canada. So, <laughs> yeah. So you're still kind of looking at the map for season three in terms of where you're going to explore? Uh, yeah. I think, um, I think we're going to be in St. Cloud this year. And we're going to do a little um, Eden Valley, I think, for reasons that will become apparent later on. We're not really spending a lot of time in North Dakota in this coming year. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of more, it's a more intimate tale, a sort of smaller tale, but there is a kind of cross-jurisdiction thing, because I think that's always interesting to kind of put people, you know, put small town people with, with bigger town people and the way things get done and everything, so, so that's where we'll be playing. And it's been a winter show, and apparently will continue to be a yes. winter show. Yeah, although last winter no, nobody had much winter when <laughs> yeah. we shot. Um, but I actually ended up thinking that was good, because I like the fact that if you look at a, a still photograph from both of the seasons, you won't confuse the two. One is The first one is really arctic, and then the second one is much more... We're in the trees more. It's it's browner. There's there's a sense, and you know we shot into June, so it we saw it sort of turn. But you know I do think that that winterness, the isolation of it, and the challenge of it is is part of the identity of what Fargo is. You know, so I think it's important to get back to that, and then maybe it'll snow this year. So you mentioned that you were surprised that people missed the Hudsucker proxy reference uh-huh, and the placemat uh-huh, of the diner. Yeah. Are there any other little details that you are, can't believe people missed? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't keep up with what people saw, sure. but, but I did think that one was sort of obscure. Um, you know, it's, it's fun, and, and obviously it's evolved. I think we've gotten a little more, um, you know, subtle with, with a lot of things. And, you know, it's not just uh, the drink special White Russians you know, written on the board behind Lester when he comes in. But but what I really like is you can have those those little, those small Easter eggs, and then you have moments that are direct kind of parallels to, to storylines or, you know, as in both the movie Fargo and in the second season, two people kidnap one person and bring them to a cabin and put a bag over their head. But it's very different, you know. But something interesting happens when you're watching a story that's familiar and doesn't but doesn't do the same thing is that there's two things going on in your brain right you're both watching 
what's happening and you're also remembering what happened and you know so we get the little bark beetle you guys saw that right the bark beetle and and um and yet it's not it's not unfolding in the same way and i think that that sort of creates a really interesting tension you know and it and it makes the viewer engage more actively than you know at the end of the first season when when billy's in a cabin and you know gus has told molly please don't leave the precinct and then she does leave the precinct and she's pregnant and you think oh my god they're going to do the movie and then we don't do the movie at all but you know that's what you're expecting so then you kind of forget that gus is in there you know you i walked him in you knew he was in there and then i went off and did some other things and then for most people there was a moment where they both remembered that he was there and realize that he was there like a split second apart and it's this if if you do it right it's a sort of hair-raising moment you know what I mean because you feel this simultaneous kind of epiphany like I figured it out and also oh my god I can't I can't believe I forgot so I don't know we try great well thank you for oh absolutely absolutely while Noah Hawley was here in town, he sat down with NPR News host Carrie Miller, who asked him even more questions about Fargo, and he shared a lot of his philosophy about how he shapes the show and what it was like working with some of the actors. So we have that up for you, too. What is a story, really, but an empathy d- delivery device? Like, it's a way we teach empathy to our children, right? We, we, we tell them stories. We say you know, here's a story about someone who's not you, and, and do you understand why they felt bad when this thing happened to them? And in this way, we, we're building empathy for people. And, you know, that's a big part of this this book and, and also the stories I tell on Fargo is that it's, it's not a story about one person. That they're ten, I, I tend to write stories about a lot of people and a lot of people who are actually in conflict with each other. And, and you know, in Fargo specifically, the, there are a lot of people who are on a collision course that's going to be violent. And... But that violent can never be entertaining. That's not... I don't want it to be fun. Um, really? I want it, yeah. I mean, I want it to feel like it does in Joel and Ethan's movies, which is it's always sort of shocking and a little too graphic and, and uh, you know, unsettling. And, and you know, so, for, for example, you know, Jesse Plemons is in... You know, he he's the hero of the of the movie, right? Him and Kirsten Dunst, and and we're rooting for them to get away with it. And we know that this crime family is coming after them. And and I would imagine we all feel like whoever they send, we're on Ed's side. But then this kid shows up. He's seventeen. He has cerebral palsy. You know, he's he has this conversation with Noreen Vanderslice, who sits behind the counter of the butcher shop. This and is the last season of Fargo. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's it's it's, it's this very, suddenly he's this really sweet kid who's definitely in over his head. And now who are you rooting for in that moment? So I think, you know, to t- sort of turn tables on people and 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 remind them that that violence is is not entertainment. You know that there is a cost and a. And a I, I'm I'm really yeah. surprised to hear you say that though because because there's so much violence in it. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, because there is a there is a humor in a lot of those scenes that involve yeah. violence. You're building in a lot of humorous elements. Yeah, I mean the biggest one really. You know, in the in the first year, you know, Billy Bob. Thornton's character, um, you know, he meets this guy, Don Chumpf, who's, you know, obviously the name itself kind of describes the guy, but he's like, you know, he's this dumb blackmailer guy, and, and, and you know, Billy sets him up, and basically, 
ends up, you know, knocking the guy out and taping him up um, so that he can neither speak nor move. Uh, and then he fires a few shots out the window and a SWAT team shows up. And, you know, for a while leading up to it, because Billy is such a, a, a kind of anti-hero and, and he's a very fun character on some level, there's a feeling as these cops show up of like, this is going to be good. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And yeah, then exactly. And then at a certain moment, as the, they start, they op, you know, there's a tripwire and they open fire on the house and, 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 you know, all the ambient sound dives out and this music kind of rises up. And, you know, you realize, and I saw um, Glenn, who played Don Chumpf, and he said, he watched it with his wife and she started crying um, watching it. And he, and he said, you know, I'm such a minor character and you gave me such an operatic death. And it really does. I think there's a moment where you think this is, this is going to be fun and then it starts to be really like excessive on some level, you know, and, and, it's, and I think it's a little bit, Sickening, you know. I mean, on th- some this level. is the reason that I find watching the series so uncomfortable because I, I always feel like I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be um, blindsided in a way right. by the fierceness of the violence. You know, yeah. I can't really tell what to think about how violent it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's good. I think it's important that to not, you know, what they do on broadcast television is is that they whitewash it so that they still kill lots of people, but but you're not allowed to show blood, right? So you, that that's worse in a way, you know, because it doesn't feel real at all. And and uh, you know, all, all the big summer movies, the violence is the point, and the story is sort of what leads up to these big action set pieces, et cetera, and. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, in adapting this thing, and I, you know, we want to talk about the book, but, but, um, you know, the movie is what it is, and that's my responsibility is to sort of take the spirit of the movie, which is a you, you know, mean the Fargo movie, yeah, yeah. Fargo, you, you know, is to take the criminal heart of it, the sort of darkness of it, and the comedy of it, and and the the basic decency of of you know of of Marge and and. Uh, you know, and to create something similar but different. So, I, you know, I get the feeling that you, this idea of the best self, that you think about that to some degree, and in, in the as you're writing the Fargo series too. I do. I'm you not know, sure how many people show their best selves in that series. Yeah. Well, look, I have small kids too, so I'm, I, I try to teach them. I use that that phrase, and I try to teach them, you know, about grace and about you know, um, being respectful and, and responsible and, and all the things that I, you know, we're, we're trying to raise these tiny citizens. Right. And, and so, you, you know, you want them to, to, to have that concept that there is a best self and, and, um, you know, the show to me is a story of basically decent people who are probably in over their heads and, and there is a similar phenomenon in the book, but, you know, in the show, you know those characters like um, you know Allison Tolman and Colin Hanks in the first year, or or Patrick Wilson and Ted Danson in the second year. We're not, I'm not saying these are superheroes. You know I'm you, you know Marge Gunderson in the movie. She never got past dealer plates. Like I don't even know if she was a good cop. Like we she we she never solved that case. You know what I mean? But 
but she had something. There was a spirit there and, and, and a, a sense of order, you know, that, that felt very familiar and comforting. And But what, what is it that intrigues you about this idea that these are average, potentially decent people that right. get in over their heads? I mean, what's, what's then the question that animates your interest in that? Well, because, I don't know, you know, we for the last, whatever, 15 or 20 years of, you know, television and movies, we, we've gotten into this sort of anti-hero phase, you know, right. where, you know, and it may be a post-9-11 thing, this idea, you know, Kiefer Sutherland in 24. It's like, in order to, to do the right thing, you have to become this tortured demon hunter who has to sacrifice everything in order to walk that wall and keep the rest of us safe. You know, and I think back to, you know, to to the to the wars that we fought in the Second World War specifically of, um, you know, the great evil arose and, and people put down their plowshares and went to fight that war. And their reward was they got to come back home and pick the plowshares up again, you know. For Marge Gunderson, you know, at the end of that movie, she saw such horrible things in the crazy Coen brothers case. And she goes home and gets in bed and there's Norm and he got the three cent stamp and it's two more months until they have the baby. (laughs) And, and tomorrow's a normal day and that's her reward. Right. So that was why I said it can't be a series where every year it's another crazy case with the same people. Cause it, a, it wouldn't feel true anymore. And B, it just, we want the these people's reward for, for for facing this is to go back to their lives, you know. So that so that's the thing that interests you. How you what reemerge back into your real life after you've had this Yeah, and I think, you know, in the second year we were really I mean, you know, Patrick's character was really struggling with this because he had come back from a war, a literal war, and right. was trying to figure out how, you know, there was this phenomenon that that I read about while I was writing it um the a, to- a term coined um by a science social scientist I don't remember his name this idea of moral injury right which is you know it's not a post traumatic stress disorder in the classic sense it's more that you know we ask soldiers to do things in war that would be considered immoral in peacetime right and then they come home and they have to live with that fact. You know, you shot a 14-year-old kid or wh- whatever the things were that, that, that you did. And that that's hard enough, but if the war is not one that you can justify, then, then it becomes even harder. That, that moral injury is greater. And, you know, so Patrick's character came back from Vietnam with the sort of sense of like, I don't know what we did over there. Um, I just know that you know, it, it didn't make me feel good and I don't, and I'm trying to get back to a place, but now I'm back here in this country and, and even in my town and it's not, I can't just pick up my plowshare again. The things are, you know, it's very conflicted here and, and I see this war coming in my town again as these, literally these thugs are coming in from out of town. Um, you know, Sebastian Younger has a new book out called Tribe. Mm. Um, where he talks about, you know, when soldiers go to war, these young, young, I mean, it was Fleet Week in New York. I was just there, and it's like, it's 18, they're 19, you know, and and, and they go, and they're, they're in these very diverse units, you know, it's, and they're working together, and they're trusting each other, and, and it really is 
sort of the best version of America, and then they come come back, and if and if the country itself is fractured and and you know at and at odds with itself, it's very hard to reassimilate back into the culture after sort of being part of something that felt like the best of America. Um, I, I was going back to read something that Steven Soderbergh said in 2015 about leaving yeah. movies and working in TV. And this is just an excerpt of, I think, a speech he gave. He said, film is increasingly fear-based in the decision-making, and that's not a good place to be creative. Do you think he's right? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, a lot of, you know, in FX, obviously, their motto is fearless. So, um Exactly. Let's say that's 80% true, but, but, you know, because it, you know, it's a bottom line business, right? You, we do this work for major corporations, you know, and, and artistic risk-taking is not necessarily synonymous with economic profit. Um, but, um, you know, my job as, as, a, um, you know, a guy who runs this show or, or any show or, you know, even in the, in the film business, you know, it's my my biggest job is to say, look, guys, we're going over this hill. We're taking that city. There are going to be snacks. It's going to be awesome. We want to go. It's going to be great. And, you know, to really get everyone excited. And it's the same thing. You know, you've got a crew. You've got a cast. Um, you have to create this sense that you know what you're doing. Um, and, um, you know, there was a day when we were breaking the second season of the show where all the... Um, the executives from MGM, which is the studio that we make uh, Fargo for, came in and they're like, what can you tell us about? They were going to take me to lunch. What can you tell us about the second season? I said, well, we're going to make two fake Ronald Reagan movies and there's a UFO. And they said, <laughs> no, really, what can you tell us about the second season? And so, you know, a lot of what I have to do, if you've seen the show, there's a lot of stuff where you're like, well, wait, what? Um, and so, uh, you know, you kind of have to walk them through that process. And that's certainly time that I could spend actually making the show, but it is a relationship and, and they're doing their part by giving me millions of dollars to put on the screen. So, you know, every, every zero kind of buys them an opinion. And, um, but, um, but you yeah, there's so sanguine about that, but I'm sure you're not. Well, look, it's, uh, you get notes. That's what happens, you know, and, and to, and to, you know, to be outraged about it is is not to understand the business that you're in, I think. But, you know, under the auspices of making a Coen Brothers movie, I got away with a lot of stuff that I n wouldn't necessarily have gotten away with otherwise, you know, to say, well, look, guys, it's not that I want a 10-minute parable sequence, but I kind of need one because, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there was a sense of, you know, and we had a lot of conversations about tone and comedy and what was, you know... And I would say to them, to try to give them an example of, you know, what I always took from, you know, those movies like No Country for Old Men or, or, um, or Fargo, um, is that, you know, I said, look, imagine that if I cast Javier Bardem in the show and everyone's high-fiving in the halls and then I gave him that haircut, right, that weird Prince Valiant haircut, and, you know, I know that they gave him that haircut and they laughed at his face for like 30 minutes. <laughs> but there's nothing funny about it in the movie, right? right? It's just this very odd, unsettling detail. So it's like, just because something's funny to me doesn't mean it's meant to be comedy. And I think that tension that exists in, in, the, in the show is 
hard to define and hard to explain. And so you can have a lot of conversations about it, or I can just make it and show you, and then you'll understand. And, and you know, but you have to build trust. They have to get that. And, the executives. And understand that. Yeah, you zeros. know. Yeah, I think so. And and they're all really nice people with names, and I like them. And, and <laughs> But it's the process, you know. And uh, But, you know... Every uh, every step, I earn more trust, and it gets easier. You you said a minute ago that one of your roles is to give the crew and everybody on the set the confidence that you know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, do you always know what you're doing? I mean, I'm doing something. I know I'm doing something. Um, but do you... You know, they probably think, well, he's got the master plan in his head, and he'll share that with us when it's... I yeah, mean, I mean, sometimes you don't want them to know the master plan, you know, sometimes it doesn't help them. I mean, the first time I met Billy Bob Thornton, you know, to get him to do the role, and he'd read, I think he'd read one episode or two episodes, and I was prepared to sort of pitch him the whole story. And he's like, I don't want to know that, you know. Um, and I was really sort of surprised, but I think he liked what he'd read, and he just wanted to kind of experience it as it came at him, Um and, you know, I think there's value to that as well. I mean, I'll give you one example of the process with the with the network, which is, you know, John Langraff, who runs FX, called me, that, and it was the day we were going to shoot the last scene from the first season, which was, I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but Allison Tolman gets a phone call. This is It's a simple scene. She gets a phone call. She goes, and it's over. You know, the story's over. Right. And she tells her husband, and they sit on the sofa, and they watch Deal or No Deal, which for some reason was the only show I felt like they could be watching. <laughs> and that was the scene, and he called me, and he said, it's a, on paper, it's a good scene. I don't know if it's a great scene. I know that the last scene of the movie is sublime, you know, the three-cent stamp. We talked about that. And, and um, so I don't know what I'm saying, except what do you think? And I said, well, look, I, we're shooting it today, and... So let me cut it together, and I'll send it to you, and we'll decide, because it's not the last thing we're shooting, so if we need to write something else. And then I went to set, and, and, uh, um, and, we, and we shot it, and, and, I, and I filmed it as, as a single take. You know, you see her on the phone, and then you follow her in, and she sits on the sofa, and then it's just the three of them. It's her and her husband and stepdaughter, and, and the scene is sort of like... You know, he's saying, I'm getting a commendation tomorrow, and they watch Deal or No Deal, and he says they should really give it to you, and she's like, no, I get to be chief, and it's sort of, it's very simple. And um, real. And, yeah, and, and what I knew about the, the last scene of the movie was, it was sublime because it was simple, you know what I mean? And, and, and the other thing that I knew was that it was the one place in the whole season that I was going to use that original Carter Burwell theme, which is so iconic. And I didn't tell him that because why would you ruin the experience of watching it, right? So every time that I have to have those interactions, it's an exercise in creative problem solving. And, and you have to, it's an experience, right? They have to have the maximum experience that you want them to have. So to, to ruin it by explaining it too much in that moment, you know, it wouldn't have had the impact that, that it had. And you know they watched it, and they called me, and we were everyone was happy, and we just we just went on with things. I have before we come out into the audience for some questions. I have one 
question for you about Billy Bob Thornton, because I just, I was on a plane coming back from Europe a couple days ago, and I watched Our Brand is Crisis. Have uh-huh. you seen that? I haven't seen it, no. He's in that. Yeah. And Sandra Bullock is. And he's so um, sinister and compelling and unsettling. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm interested in your, how, was he the, he was the guy you knew had to play this character? Or? Yeah, because, you know, on some level, and he said to me, it's like this character combines all of the best characters that I've played, you uh-huh. know, on some level. There's a little bad Santa, there, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a little uh, man who wasn't there. There's, you know, and, and you know, that it had this, he does, you know, he does so many things so well, but no one else really does the kind of, sort of predatory stillness that he has. Oh, that's perfect you know? way to describe and it. And then also the sheer pleasure of screwing with somebody. You know what I mean? And that that character sort of, that's what that character was. Like, you couldn't read him. You were afraid of him. And he was completely unpredictable, but he was having a great time, you know? And that was a, that was something that, and you know... When he when he realized that that he got to be a dentist, you know, we got to come back and find him after a year, and that you know, now he was this dentist who said aces, <laughs> like it was a great. Right. He, he had a great time in his transformation. That so. that predatory stillness. Yeah. that's exactly what it is. It's so yeah. I think frightening in a, you know, and his face doesn't even have to reveal a lot. No, he sort of had two. You know, he was totally still, and then an eyebrow would go up, and like, that was yes, like a, a very big, yeah, simple expression. Yeah, right. It's creeping me out even talking about Let's it. Let's right move now. on. Should Let's we talk move about on? Something okay. else. Let's. Uh, how about if I come out to the audience with a microphone? So I started my career as a writer, and yeah. I transitioned into marketing. Found it very difficult to go from having people read my direct words to sort of giving the implication as translated through a commercial or packaging or whatever. I was wondering if you could speak a little about how that feels when you go from somebody reading your words and reacting directly to your words versus the feeling of it's being translated through a performance, a director, et cetera, and the way that people react to that comes across very differently. Yeah, you you know, you have to learn to let, let go on some level and to trust that if you've you know, you've gone to these actors for a reason, and and um, and sometimes they really surprise you. You know, when when Bokeem Woodbine showed up to play Mike Milligan, and and uh, you know, I liked the character on paper, but what he brought to it, the affect that he brought, his way of speaking, his his demeanor, with that was all him, and and there was a magic and alchemy in that um, transformation. You know, and there was a scene. You know that that Patrick Wilson did in the first hour this last year where, um, you know, he comes home, he's just sort of seen the whole mess that, that's, you know, at the, at the, uh, at the old waffle hut. And, um, you know, and his kid is asleep and his wife is washing the dishes and she says, your daughter, I forgot to tell you, your daughter made something for you today. And she hands him this pottery ashtray, you know, which I used to make my parents ashtrays in pottery class cause it was seventies and, 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 you know, he looks at it and, and, you know, he has a moment where, you know, where he kind of wells up, which wasn't in the script. That was all Patrick, you know, it was a very sort of simple scene, which I like. And, and, you know, um, a scene that was sort of domestic and you were supposed to like them together, et cetera. And, 
but it it turned out to be a, a a really pivotal moment where you saw just what um the impact of this work did had on him and where he was coming from it was really revealing and and uh you know so you have to then you as a writer you start to take yourself out of it more you know and then you get those notes from this the network saying like maybe write more into it but um I don't know. You know, it's it's that's part of it. Is it, it is a collaborative process, and and you know, if if you're lucky and you're working with people that you trust, then then that then you can learn to let go a little bit. Noah, this is really generous of you to come oh, and thank be you. with yes. us, and thank you. Thanks this very is, much for doing this. This is my other home, apparently. <laughs> That was Carrie Miller of Minnesota Public Radio interviewing Noah Hawley about his new book, Before the Fall, and of course about Fargo, the show that is about to return for a third season. When you say about to return, though, we have a long time to wait. Sorry, fans. Uh, They said they're going to probably start shooting in November and hoping for an April release. Um, You can hear this whole interview. We just put a snippet on later on NPR's The Thread, which has all of our book coverage. Uh, You'll hear from us, hopefully, as we get more details before the show comes out in 2017. Thanks for listening. Okay, then. Bye now. If you see